Hello, Canada, and welcome to another episode of Canadian Common Sense. This is Canadian Common Sense with Lewis and Tony. Hello, Canada. It's Tony here from the beautiful city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and welcome to another edition of Canadian Common Sense. So I'm flying solo today. My illustrious co-host, Lewis, has a prior engagement, so is unable to be with us tonight. So you can certainly look forward to hearing from him again next week. But for tonight, you are going to be stuck with only me and point of personal privilege as I take so many of those. I was going to try to do the show for you last night, but uh, I took a two-hour walk along the picturesque river valley in the South Saskatchewan River here in Saskatoon. And like today, beautiful 28 degrees Celsius and just a very light breeze, beautiful prairie summer day. If you haven't got to experience one, well, make certain you put that on your bucket list because summer on the prairies is absolutely breathtaking. All right, on the show tonight, Canada is back, back of the bus, that is, with the UN. Working from home, is that going to be, quote, the new normal? Peter McKay, Conservative Party leadership candidate, talking pipelines. The CERB gets extended and more. Right, let's jump right into it here. Uh, In case I didn't mention it before, today's date is June 24th, 2020, and thank you so much for joining me. So Justin Trudeau, Canada's illustrious Prime Minister, had made it his pet project that he was going to earn Canada a seat on the United Nations Security Council. I'm using the word earn with the dreaded air fingers quotes because that was never his intention to earn earn that seat at all and the reason I started off by saying Canada is back because all of you will remember when elected in 2015 that was what just Justin Trudeau had said Canada is back and I think he made it his personal pet project to try to win this uh, the seat on the United Nations Security Council because it is something that Mr. Harper had attempted to do previous. In 2010, Mr. Harper had made a, made a bid for Canada to have that seat at the UN Security Council and was unsuccessful. And Mr. Harper was willing to disclose that the government on our behalf spent $11 million attempting to win that, that Security Council seat unsuccessfully. And $11 million is a lot of money that I'm not necessarily comfortable spending, especially not at this time of our of Canada's life cycle because, well, we are, especially now, dealing with the Wuhan virus and the pandemic, and understand that is so, so far at the tail end of Mr. Trudeau's journey to attempt to get this UN Security Council seat. Uh, we'll get into the how much right away. Uh, Mr. Trudeau had a zeal to get this this seat, and it was nothing more than a token position in the first place. As Lewis and I discussed many times already, it wasn't even it was a temporary seat with no real voting power. It was just, I guess, it was just a pre- more like a prestige appointment than anything else. And 
really, Mr. Trudeau started very, very late in the game for Canada even to have a legitimate shot at the Security Council seat. However, uh, I won't even say give him credit for trying because he never should have tried in the first place. But when competing with Ireland and Norway for the seat, you got to think Canada's chances aren't very good right from the get-go because you've already got a European bloc of countries in the United Nations that will very likely vote for another European country for this worthless seat. And likely that's what happened. So Mr. Trudeau was, of course, stuck vying for support he could get from, well, the Francophonie nations, and he was going to African countries, the Caribbean. And you got to think that there are five permanent members in the Security Council, those being Russia, China, United States, United Kingdom, and France. And three of those countries aren't really happy with Canada right now. So you got to think that probably had some sway. Who are those three countries in case uh, you you can't figure that one out? Well, Russia certainly isn't very happy with Canada right now. China, definitely not. Little spat going on there. United States, well, they are certainly our biggest trading partner, but really not the best of friends right now. Um, especially not after, what was it, the G G20 when... Justin Trudeau was openly mocking Donald Trump on a hot mic. Yeah, that's probably never the best diplomatic move, Mr. Trudeau. But Mr. Trudeau, the arrogant one, is never really one to think about consequences when he shoots his mouth off. No, is he? But hey, he had some great socks. And I guess, thankfully, he, he saved us spending a little bit of money on his continuous worldwide junket trying to earn support and earn votes for that seat when the pandemic did hit because he stayed home. And you'll remember that when railways were being blockaded across Canada and roadways were being blockaded, Mr. Trudeau was jet-setting around the world uh, to try to earn support for the UN Security Council seat. And what did all of that cost Canadian taxpayers? That's what we want to know. And unfortunately, big surprise, Mr. Trudeau is not being forthcoming with how much it cost. So if you listen to Mr. Trudeau, he will tell you it only cost Canada $2.3 million to bid for the UN Security Council seat. And I don't have a laugh track queued up, but give me a break, Mr. Trudeau. $2.3 million would only cover him and his security for a couple of flights, honestly. And think about it, an $850 million donation to the World Health Organization in the past month to, quote, combat COVID-19 worldwide that's a little more than $2.3 million, and you can't tell me that that $850 million was not intended to sweeten the pot for that Security Council bid. So, yeah, we've blown way past $2.3 million. And here's the funny thing. It would have cost Canada well much, much more than $850 million even to have a legitimate chance at winning this seat because the United Nations actually have made it very clear that 
a successful bid for the seat would require a much higher percentage of gross domestic product being spent on peacekeeping, for one thing. And there was another criteria as well where Canada fell short foreign aid. <clears throat> and both Ireland and Norway had stepped up and they were well over 1.4% of their GDP on peacekeeping, and I believe it was about 2% on foreign aid, and Canada is well below both of those countries. Now, to be fair, Mr. Harper actually began the decline in spending on Canada's peacekeeping efforts and foreign aid spending, but Mr. Trudeau, as often has done in his dealings with anything that had to do with the Harper government, said, hold my beer, and actually cut foreign aid and peacekeeping even more. Remember the 30 soldiers he had sent to Mali for peacekeeping purposes and was not able even to keep those 30 soldiers engaged and had to bring them home? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, yep, hold my beer indeed. You want to see cuts? I will show you cuts. Well, thank you, Mr. Trudeau. I guess you kind of did that one, and I can't even say to yourself because you did that one to all of us, actually. So, certainly a lot more reasons than simply money or lack of money spent. And there was no lack of money spent. There's no question about that. However, Pierre Polyev, um, whom any regular listener to the show will know I've got quite an enormous man crush on because he's an absolute bear in the House of Commons. And he should be the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And yes, I've said that so many times that you certainly know where I stand on it. And I get that this time wasn't right for him. So he gets a pass and I understand his reasoning. I'm 100% behind him, but I am allowed to be disappointed. Anyway, in the House of Commons, Pierre Polyev asked, and I can't remember the Liberal Minister's name, it wasn't unfortunately Bill Morneau and it was not Justin Trudeau, and I cannot remember the lady's name, but he he asked her simple and straightforward questions. How much did it cost for Canada's bid for this UN security seat? And she would not answer. She just gave the runaround answer that Canada's got a, you know, a position in the world and Canada's influence, Canada's role, and went on about gender and LBGT issues. And Mr. Polyev asked again, how much did, it, did the government spend trying to secure the Security Council bid? Same non-answer floated around. He attempted to ask how much Canada spent on even just meal and travel expenses in visiting all these different foreign nations. Again, just a big runaround. And he kept asking very directly, how much, how much? And the lady would not give an answer at all. And honestly, how hard is it just to say we spent, even if she doesn't have an exact figure, to say we spent roughly $8 billion, if that's what the number was, or whatever. But no, no, typical liberal non-answer and keep talking around and get your talking points out there. And there's just no more need for this. It's just be honest. How much money have you spent? 
how much of our money have you spent? But no, no, they uh, they are unable to answer such questions like that. So we don't know now. And with cut to the Auditor General's funding, we may never know because the Auditor General has such a backlog. And you know it's getting bad when even the parliamentary budget officer, who was a Trudeau appointee, uh, Yves Giroux, who I'm actually starting to get a lot of respect for because he is getting really tired of these antics as well. And he also wants to do his job, wants to do his job. I should actually stress that because he's a liberal appointee who actually wants to do his job and wants to keep government finances to account and keep the government account for those finances. And he is being stonewalled. And he has has pegged this year's deficit to be well, he says well in excess of 250 billion and he says approaching 300 billion i'm still sticking with my my gun to say we are going to go way past 300 billion as as a budget deficit this year um mr Giroux hinted about the economy you know not recovering as quickly as he might like and of course the with the, the serb being extended which we will talk about in a little while he said that of course is going to put additional strain on the budget as well. But I just think that, yeah, we're going to have a very sluggish recovery. The Trudeau has not yet found a group of people he cannot throw money at. So that budget deficit is going to be, I'm, I'm saying I'm still calling for $400 billion. These, this government has borrowed $371 billion in the span of about three months, I believe it is. So, Right now, any kind of estimate is just like throwing darts at a dartboard. So I'm unwilling to to nail myself down to any figures. And unfortunately, I'm unable to even come close to a guess as to how much of Canadian taxpayer dollars got thrown away on a bid for a UN Security Council seat that was never ours to win in the first place. And... I sincerely hope, and I have absolutely zero faith that it will happen, but I sincerely hope that Mr. Trudeau will actually be held to account for this complete waste of Canadian taxpayer dollars on what essentially would have been, I can't even say a prestige seat. I mean, that was really what he was after, was Canada's some prestige, and to thumb his nose at Stephen Harper to say, I got this done and you couldn't. Well, at least Mr. Harper only spent $11 million, if that's any consolation to anybody. All right. Now, moving along, and this actually just broke today, this news, and that is that Canada's fantastic budgeting processes and amount of money spent on the pandemic has diminished Canada's credit rating. Now, it was, uh, I believe it was called the Finch Agency today, and reported in Bloomberg anyway, I believe it was the Fitch Ratings Agency, had downgraded Canada's AAA credit rating. So I'm going to guess we're just down to a double A because I did not hear anything really tragic. But that just, uh, to me, exemplifies yet more of what we've been saying on this show all along is that we can't spend money that we don't 
have. And Mr. Trudeau, and I've said this many times, does not understand money. And I really think that he somehow believes that the budget actually will balance itself. And I think he hopes for that because I don't think he would know how to balance a budget because he does not understand money. And and he's an idiot. I mean, there's there's that. Justin Trudeau is an idiot. So that makes it a little difficult for him to figure out how to balance a budget as well. All I have to say about that, we are our triple A credit rating is has now been downgraded. So yep, Canada is back, all right. All right, so one thing the pandemic has shown us is that a lot of Canadian office workers are more than capable of working from home. Now, I actually have a, a few in-laws that, that have been working from home. Even before the pandemic, we're able to have that option. But since the pandemic hit and lockdown came into place, had no option. They had to work from home remotely. And now, of course, not only have a lot of Canadian office workers gotten used to the idea, but Canadian employers are actually now getting used to the idea of having their employees working from home and working remotely. So what does this say about the future of the Canadian office workspace post-pandemic? Well, and I know by no means are we post-pandemic yet. Well, officially, in my opinion, the lockdown ended when our politicians decided to go pander for for support and make themselves seen at protest rallies with no social distancing and in often cases no masks. So in my opinion, the, the lockdown is over. In the opinion of most governments, no, it is not. But the discussion still needs to be had about the future of the workplace. And we noted before, and Lewis and I talked about this on a few different shows, there is a significant lack of off or sorry significant abundance of office space for rent even before the pandemic hit especially in cities like Calgary for example where there are, there are complete buildings that are totally empty right now and i believe the office space vacancy rate in Calgary downtown is 25% if i'm not mistaken it may even be higher than that now but a lot of employees have been working from home. And now a lot of companies have seen, and the company I work for is no different. I don't work in the office, but I do have, you know, obviously there is an office where I where I work. And for three months now, a lot of our office staff have been working remotely from home, presumably. And you have to think, so we've got, you know, a fairly significant amount of square footage of even a sour building that has been sitting empty for three months. No, the the lights aren't even on for that matter. And employers are now starting to realize that, well, perhaps we don't need to bring our employees back into the office, at least not on a daily basis. And a lot of the office workers are now discovering that they like working from home. And they're actually getting accustomed to it. And in some cases, office, Canadian office workers have actually said they find themselves more productive 
working from home. So this could end up actually being a uh, one part of the transformation of Canada's economy post-pandemic is you may see a lot more people working from home and meeting through apps like Zoom, although hopefully they would find something that is more secure than Zoom. And you might see some of this vacant office space around Canada staying vacant, and you might even see a lot of offices downsizing their office space in favor of asking their employees to work from home. And there are also some cases, which we've pointed out too, where office staff has been laid off and suddenly the managers are realizing, well, this place actually seems to run just fine without employee X and employee Y here. So maybe they should just continue staying home, AKA their layoff turns into termination. And one other sector of society that I think could be severely impacted by this and I'll put the disclaimer out there right now. I'm not attempting to attack this profession. Lewis's dad is a teacher. I was trained as a teacher. However, with teachers being off work since the middle of March as well, at least that was the case here in Saskatchewan and through much of Canada was the 13th of March when everything shut down. Teachers have been off work and parents have opted to homeschool and there have been some cases, like here in Saskatchewan, where students were told in March, you will get a passing grade for your, on your next grade level, grade 12s, you will get to graduate based on the marks that you currently have. And all students were given the option to improve their marks by, through distance learning, homeschooling, etc. And that's where I want to go next with this is what impact will this pandemic have going forward on the education profession. I know anecdotally, I've talked to friends and family I have in Alberta and friends I have here who have had to homeschool their children or chosen to homeschool, I guess, while the while the lockdown has been on, saying that their students have actually done better with homeschooling and remote learning distance learning, if you want to call it that, than when they were in school and they have not spent nearly the same amount of time as they would have spent in a, during a regular school day. Just leads me to ask, is there potential for a future in this country where homeschooling becomes a much more popular option and the classroom teacher becomes... I won't say irrelevant, but I will say perhaps not as needed to the point where perhaps fewer teachers will be required by Canada's schools. It certainly is a possibility. And I think teachers unions, will, of course, will definitely have a lot to say about that. But I think the teachers unions are going to have to answer for what I see might become a larger appetite for homeschooling. And that doesn't, I don't mean to diminish the quality of education that a teacher will deliver to students. However, it's the curriculum, I think, is where teachers get bogged down because they have to teach 
certain things in, in the curriculum that aren't always the most practical for everyday life. And I think when it's parents delivering that to their children, parents filter out the BS pretty quick. And once they filter out the BS that isn't necessary and don't deliver on some of the leftist opinions that end up coming out of a lot of teachers' mouths, and I know a lot of teachers, and I don't know a lot who are conservative or in any way to the right of the political spectrum, so I don't feel at all uncomfortable using that line about leftist opinions. And especially when you, when seeing the homework that would come home with my kids when they were younger in school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I really have to wonder what's going to happen with, with homeschooling. Will there be a greater appetite for it or will uh, we fall back in the same patterns? I just have a funny feeling that parents now who have had to homeschool and gone through it and seen that, you know, in half the the time of day, kids are still able to get the same amount of work done, are much more relaxed and are getting better marks, might just end up being an option. And that still will not, you know, shed the school from a kid's life altogether because there are still going to be, you know, there's going to always going to be a physical element of school, whether it's phys ed class, whether it's the so, the social gatherings. There's always going to be a role for the school, but I would not be surprised if that role were somewhat diminished by an uptick in the interest for homeschooling, at least in the short term, if not, you know, becoming a long-term trend. So be interesting to watch that one. Okay, I am going to move on to Mr. Peter McKay. Now, Peter McKay, uh, if for those who don't know who he is, and good God, all of us should by now, he is was a leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, which merged with the Canadian Alliance to become the Conservative Party of Canada, and Mr. McKay became the deputy leader. He was Mr. Harper's right-hand man in, the, in Mr. Harper's government, and is now running for the job of leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And Lewis and I endorsed him on this show, even though neither one of us is actually a member of the Conservative Party of Canada. Okay, introductions over. Peter McKay was attacked by Aaron O'Toole, another uh, Ontario MP who's, uh, who's the candidate for the leadership, and saying that Mr. McKay supported giving Quebec a veto on any future pipeline projects. So, of course, Mr. McKay and his acolytes quickly tried to walk that back and said, that is just preposterous. We are by no means allowing Quebec to have a veto on pipeline projects. So, what did he actually say? Well, what he actually said, he came up with a statement and he kind of arrogantly, condescendingly laughed off Mr. O'Toole's comments about a veto for Quebec. And... All he was willing to say in his press or press release was that his plan included consulting with provinces and consulting with Quebec on any future pipeline projects. Okay, Mr. McKay, I because I've been in the political game for 30 years, my BS filter 
is very strong. And the way you word that, that you will be consulting with provinces and specifically point out that you would consult with Quebec on any pipeline that went went through their province, that just makes my BSO meter go right into the red. Ding, 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 ding. So let me just translate Mr. McKay's statement for the rest of us. I'm not giving Quebec a veto, but Quebec could have a veto. I mean, let's just say it in plain English. I'm going to consult with Quebec, and if they say no, I'm just going to forge ahead and push a pipeline through Quebec and potentially cost my party 75 seats in the House of Commons? Right. Of course he won't. So I really wish that not even Mr. McCabe, in this case Mr. McCabe, but any politician, just be be straight with us. Just tell us like it is. Just tell us that, yeah, you know what? If Quebec doesn't want a pipeline going through Quebec, then we're not going to put one through Quebec. And you know what? I wouldn't like it, and I would be the first one saying, just as I said to Mr. Trudeau, and just as I said about Mr. Scheer, and as Mr. Mr. Bernier as well during the election campaign, although he said he would, I said, look up our Constitution, look up Section 91, projects in the national interest, federal jurisdiction. You don't ask the provinces if that pipeline is going through. You tell the provinces this pipeline is going through. Let's talk about the route in which it's going through. Not if it's going through, that it's going through, and when. Now, remember that BC Premier John Horgan tried this stunt, and he tried to stop the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline from going through and lost enough times in the BC Court of Appeal. The Supreme Court finally said, no, 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 we're not taking these just this case anymore. Mr. Horgan eventually had to give up and realize that, yeah, I don't have a leg to stand on. Well, Mr. Legault probably knows that constitutionally, but doesn't care because he also knows that all he has to do is remind, in this case, Peter McKay, or Justin Trudeau, um, yeah, you realize I, re I represent Quebec, right? And just like it has for 50-plus years, Quebec will get its way, and look, no pipeline. So nice platitudes, Mr. McKay. I do appreciate your words talking about consulting, but you don't have to speak in code. We know that you will pander to Quebec just like every other prime minister does. Why do you think there is such a strong separatist movement in Western Canada now? Because Western Canada sees through your BS as well now. And I will say that, yes, national unity is always stronger when there is a conservative government in Ottawa. So I do hope that should we get a conservative government in Ottawa, that will again be the case. But Mr. McKay, you're never going to win over the hearts and minds of Western Canada by lying to us. And when you speak with these code words saying that, you know, you will consult with provinces, well, we know what that means. We have played this game here in Western Canada when dealing with Quebec 
for 150 years. And I recently, I know I just said for 50 years, Quebec has been getting its way because it has been for the last 50 years that Quebec has gotten basically everything it wants from Confederation because it was 50 years ago that Canada started to elect prime ministers almost exclusively from Quebec. So big surprise that the handouts started going fast and strong to Quebec. All right, going to move along. I've, time is a little bit short today, so I've got a couple more topics I want to cover, and I think I should be able to get those in and still be under time for the show. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, has been extended now for an additional eight weeks. And I, I, initially, I would want to say that, oh, well, I mean, that's great because there's going to be some university students, for example, who are unable to find work who will now be accommodated until September when university starts up again. At least hypothetically. I know at least in my university here, the University of Saskatchewan, their first semester is going to be remote learning for September to January. So at least they're still starting, I guess. But anyway, the CERB will be extended for another eight weeks, which is a bad move for the country. But when it comes from Justin Trudeau governing by press briefing, which is what he's been doing lately, it's just a really sad state of affairs. And... Announcing this, of course, with only four hours to debate the $150 billion in spending he had promised in the past few weeks, I guess it's really hard to imagine it not happening, isn't it? Now, the CERB so far in this first two months, three months, I'm sorry, has cost Canadian taxpayers $67 billion, I believe the figure is. So by extending it for another eight weeks is going to be another $60 billion, if I'm not mistaken. So how's that deficit looking now? See, now you understand why I say that deficit's going to be, be 400 with no problem at all. Anyway, the CERB has been extended for another eight weeks. Lewis and I had this discussion already. There are businesses right now in Canada that are have been allowed and cleared to reopen who can't find employees because there are employees who are saying, no, I'm, I'm comfortable making 2000 a month doing absolutely nothing on the CERB. As I mentioned in a previous rant, because this is Canada, this is summer. Our summers are short. So yeah, maybe I'll just stay on the CERB until August. And then in the fall, we'll, I'll, I'll go look for work. Well, A, that work might not be there in the fall. B, when employees decide to stay on the CERB instead of going going back to work or going to work, if they are not returning to their current job with claims that they feel it is unsafe, and oftentimes the employers have already put safety protocols in place so so as to avoid that excuse, now those employees will have considered to, be have re, to have resigned from their positions. And so then... If they've resigned, well, once the CERB money runs out, well, guess what? They're just unemployed and not eligible for EI because they have been considered to have quit their jobs. So not only are would there be no job for them because either A, the businesses simply will not reopen without them, or 
B, the businesses will have moved on to another employee, then also these employees will no longer have income coming in. All right, now you see this this absolute snowball of really poor decisioning is going to hit so hard in the fall. If the CERB is done in August and the six-month mortgage deferrals are done in September and the six-month utility bill referral deferrals are done in September, come October, you're going to have a lot of Canadians who have are either unemployed or underemployed and have less than the normal amount of money coming in or no money coming in, it's going to be a world of hurt in Canada this fall. And Lewis and I predicted that on this show months ago. And I'll actually take Lewis's tagline. I don't want to be right about that, but that writing is all over the wall. And we have discussed that on this show many times that it's happening. And it's sad that there are employers who can't find people because people don't want to return to work. And I've heard it here too, people saying, oh, they don't feel safe returning to work because of the virus. And it's a cop-out is what it is. But unfortunately, it's a cop-out that they're able to utilize and that is going to bite them in the keister because that job will not be there for them when they decide they're ready for it. And it bites the employers in the keister because if they can't find employees, they either have to reopen on a limited scale or not open at all. And there's that much more money that is taken away from the economy. This is a lose-lose proposition all around, and it is going to hit this country hard come fall. And what else is happening this fall? Well, there's a lot of talk that there could be an election this fall. So won't that make for a very, very interesting election where Canada's left can campaign on spending even more money to help these poor Canadians who were too unmotivated to return to work or look for work. It's going to be one interesting fall, Canada, and we're just getting started now. All right, I'm almost out of time here. I do want to end off our show on a lighter note like we did last week and actually on the exact same topic. What do you know? (laughs) So Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, decided a few days ago, uh, later last week, to that they needed to change their name. They aren't, so they are no longer the uh, People's Republic of Chaz. They are now the People's Republic. I don't know. I'm, I'm throwing that one in there just because they're a bunch of Marxists. But anyway, they are the People's Republic of Chop, because it's the Capitol Hill occupied property. And why the name change so early on in their in their uh, their nationhood uh, apparently uh, they felt that the name autonomous zone was given to them by others and occupied property is is more accurate for what for their cause b by calling it occupied property they uh, 
feel that there is they have more legal entitlements to demand services from the United States of America because they're not declaring that they're their own country yet just just an occupied property and what does the Seattle mayor have to say about all this, by the way? Remember the Seattle mayor just walked out of City Hall and said, you know what, you guys can have that. Well, this same, I got to use the word, the same wingnut mayor of Seattle who said that, oh, you know, this is not a big deal. Hakuna Matata, no worries. This is really just like a, a festival atmosphere. This is a summer of love. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, yes, she did. Uh, she did say that. Yes. <clears throat> so this, uh, the summer of love that currently takes place in Chop, where they have since about day three been begging for food and other resources, is now coming to an end. And so perhaps by next week we will have talked about the republic that was Chop. Because the mayor of Seattle has now said, well, it's it's time we take this back. So I had to say to myself, "Take, are you going to take the graffiti down too? And uh, what happens to, I want to say his name is Boz, the quote-unquote warlord of CHOP? I believe his name is Boz or Baz or, I don't know. I think he's a rapper of some kind. But anyway, I... Uh, Curious what happens with him. Does he uh, get tried for war crimes? After all, there was a shooting in CHOP, and the Seattle police were actually encumbered and confronted and unable to deal with the situation in a timely and effective manner. So would that then be considered a war crime on Boz's part? Baz? boss the the warlord let's just say the warlord and um what will become of chop's garden the uh the great garden experiment with the topsoil thrown onto the grass and the plants strewn about left to their own devices to grow i mean we have to see if this agricultural experiment bears any fruit literally and figuratively of course but, well, to the poor folks of CHOP, or as uh, I heard on one talk show, uh, host referred to them as Veganzuela, and I thought that was fantastic. Um, to the poor folks of Veganzuela, they may not have a country by next week. So we may never find out exactly how, how they were going to get socialism right this time. Or are we? Because on the other side of the United States of America, another protest group decided that they are going to get socialism right this time because CHOP didn't do it right. Venezuela didn't do it right. Cuba didn't do it right. USSR didn't do it right. China didn't do it right. But Bahaz or Baz, if, you, if the H is silent, I'll call it Bahaz just for fun. Bahaz, the Black House Autonomous Zone, which has now been declared not far from the White House in Washington, D.C. Bahaz, they are going to get socialism right. So Bahaz, inspired by, yes, Black Lives Matter, has was erecting barricades and fences in an area of Washington, D.C., 
close to the White House. And Bahaz says, we are going to get socialism right. Well, they kind of forgot that in Washington, D.C., they're very close to the White House. And the guy who occupies the White House, Donald Trump, said, yeah, I'm actually not going to put up with that crap here. And so those barricades are going to come down. And no, you get away from those statues and you're not taking any statues down. Like in Portland, where they took down a statue of George Washington, which makes me kind of giggle because you would think George Washington being the founding father of America, or credited as being, that folks in CHOP or folks who believe in Black Lives Matter would look up to him as being like the ultimate freedom fighter. But I don't think like occupiers. I don't think like goofy vegans, Waylands. <laughs> Sorry, I love that name. Um, so maybe I just don't get it. But I'm really curious to see how the uh, the Black House Autonomous Zone, how Bahaz does socialism better than CHOP. And I wonder if maybe more of America's Democrat-run larger metropolitan areas will also decide to adopt autonomous zones and make all kinds of autonomous states within this, the major cities of America. In fact, maybe they should start one in New York City. Because seeing as New York City just reassigned 600 plainclothes officers, and what do you know? Shootings went up 330% in one week? Well, that's not a coincidence now, is it? So perhaps in Bahas and even in CHOP or maybe in chop cargo or whatever they would call theirs if they had one perhaps we'll see even more of that going on but we'll discuss that next week canada because i'm certain we'll have much more to report but anyway i've got to get out now so i do want to thank you for joining me whether you're listening in on spotify or google podcasts or apple podcasts or wherever you found us today i do want to thank you for taking the time with me today. Until next time, it is Tony here in the beautiful city of Saskatoon, and we will talk to you next week.